would like to start today's episode by thanking everyone who reached out to me on social media during my two-week hiatus to say how much you were enjoying the podcast and missed having episodes ready to go for the past two Sunday nights. It always means a lot to anyone who creates something to know that their work is appreciated, and in particular, I'm glad to know that my cheesy jokes and obscure pop culture references haven't scared anyone away from enjoying the rich history that Arizona has to offer. We still have a lot to cover, and I'm more than a little excited to be your tour guide through it all. But I would also like to take this opportunity to ask for a favor. If you really like the podcast, feel it is worth a listen, and missed it enough these past couple weeks, could I encourage you to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever app you're listening to me on, and leave a five-star review? It may sound a little silly and a touch simplistic, but that really is the best way for new listeners to find the podcast. Word of mouth is also really big when it comes to podcasting, so please feel free to also tell anyone you think would enjoy listening about our little show. Now, I told myself at the outset that I would keep producing this podcast if only my mother was listening to it. For the record, she does. And that hasn't changed. I'll be here week after week occasional breaks aside. But if you think some other history-inclined folk would also get a kick out of listening, then this is the perfect opportunity to invite them to join our small band. And with that out of the way, may I just say, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and welcome back to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 33, The Apacheria. So far in this podcast, I feel that I have done a great disservice to one particular group of people, the Apaches. Looking back through my episode transcripts, I find that they just sort of dropped into the narrative back in episode 7, where their rating was one of the factors that eventually resulted in Pope's Pueblo Revolt back in 1680. There was no explanation of where they came from, or really, who they were. And from there, they just kept popping up with no additional background, always ready to strike at the Presidios, raid outlying settlements, and harry Spanish-allied tribes. In fact, anyone listening to this podcast might be under the impression that they are basically the Arizonan equivalent of the Tusken Raiders from Star Wars, faceless marauders who are waiting to attack any Spanish or Mexican Luke that wanders too far from the homestead. It's that deficiency that I want to address today, as we look at the Apaches as a people and major player in Arizona, bringing them up to the fateful year of 1861 before next week when we dive into the Bascom Affair, which will be the start of the Apache Wars with the U.S. So, who are the Apache? That is a surprisingly complicated question. We have the body of legends and traditions passed down among the Apache people, as well as linguistic and historical evidence to broadly trace a history. As for the legends and traditions, I'm going to tread extremely softly as I restate the reminder that I am not an ethnologist, anthropologist, archaeologist, or really any sort of ologist who can speak with authority on this matter. I will pass along one story told by Geronimo in his dictated autobiography to S.M. Barrett. 
According to Geronimo, through Barrett, long ago there was darkness with no light. The world was also filled with all manners of beasts and monsters, which made it extremely hard for humans to exist. There erupted a war between the birds, led by the eagle, and the beast over whether to allow light. The birds won, though many beasts and monsters survived. In this world was a woman, one of the few humans still alive. I believe this was white painted woman, an important part of the Apache tradition and coming of age ceremonies for women, but I could be wrong about that. If I am, I apologize. The woman, according to Geronimo, was blessed with many children, but they were all snatched away and eaten by a beast that is called a dragon, though I suspect that is Barrett's word. The woman eventually became pregnant again from a rainstorm and hid her last child deep inside of a cave to protect him from the dragon, constantly lying to the beast about having no other children. Finally, the boy grows up and says he wants to go hunting. He and his uncle, one of the few men left, go and kill a buck, but the meat attracts the dragon, who proclaims that he will eat both the venison and the boy afterward. While his uncle cowers, the boy gets into a struggle to keep the dragon from eating his meat. Eventually, they decide on a competition. The dragon will stand 100 paces away and fire four arrows at the boy. If the boy survives, he can then switch places and fire four arrows at the dragon. The dragon shoots his arrows, but each time the boy made a particular sound that caused the arrow to shatter and the boy to suddenly be on top of a nearby rainbow directly above where he had stood. When it came to the boy's turn, he fired his four arrows, the first three each destroying a coat of scales over the dragon's heart. The fourth and final arrow struck the heart, killing the monster. According to Geronimo, this boy's name was Apache. He was taught by Usen, an Apache deity, about how to hunt, fight, and make medicine, and Usen then gave the boy and his people homes in the West. As I said, that is Geronimo's version, and I'm sure there are many variants and other stories out there, but I feel it is a good representative sampling of Apache lore. Just recognize it as a small taste, not anything approaching an appetizer, let alone a full meal. But let's turn to the historical evidence that we have. Linguistics show that the Apache speak in Athapascan language, which is a family of languages that originate in northwestern Canada. The movement of the people who become known as the Apache is still a little unclear, but they eventually migrated from their homes in extreme northwest North America down toward the Great Plains. There is a lot of debate about when exactly they made it to the Great Plains and then eventually into the southwest, with some arguing that it happened as early as 1100 AD, while others saying it wasn't until the early 17th century. What we do know is that Coronado considered the land that would one day be known as the Apacharia as despoblado, or depopulated. It's also entirely possible that if the Apache were living in the area at the time, they had simply stayed out of his way. Coronado would encounter people he called Querechos in northeastern New Mexico, who were probably of Apache stock, while Espejo, a generation later, would also encounter similar people in northwestern New Mexico. But it is to Oñate in 1600 that we have the first written account of a people dubbed Apache. 
By the way, if you need a refresher on Coronado, Espejo, and Oñate, you should probably go back and re-listen to episodes 5 and 6. The people that Oñate described still were Great Plains-based and were reliant on bison for meat and fur, leading him to dub them the Vaquero Apache. However, even then, groups of these Apache were migrating into the southwest. By the 1630s, we get records of a people living in the Four Corners region who were adopting many attributes of their Puebloan neighbors. This group was called by the Spanish Apache de Navajo, or as we know them today, the Navajo. I should probably pause here to make an important distinction. The term Apache is not what the Apache called themselves. There is some minor disagreement over the origin of the name, but most think it is derived from the Zuni word Apachu, which is translated as simply enemy. Can't imagine why the Apaches wouldn't have named themselves that. Before they started adopting the name in the latter 19th century, the Apaches used a variety of terms, you know, depending on which band we are talking about, for themselves, such as Inde, or Tene, or Tinde. All these, like the Navajo descriptor Dene, means the people, or simply men, or the more generic humans. The Spanish were forever trying to categorize the different groups of Apaches and giving them a variety of names. So they started calling one group Helenos, for those who lived near the Gila River, or Janeros, for those that settled near the Mexican Presidio at Janos during the Peace by Purchase era. Consequently, this often makes it difficult to identify what Apache groups are actually being referred to, as the sources were rarely careful to make sure they are identifying the correct bands. Of course, we shouldn't forget that part of their inability to correctly identify which band they were dealing with is because the Apache organizational structure was forever baffling to the Spanish. Though that was certainly not unique. I didn't mention this back in our survey of the various factors aiding the Europeans in their conquest of the New World, but historian David J. Weber pointed out that the Amerindian and European political experiences were essentially polar opposites. The Europeans in general, and the Spanish in particular, had spent centuries slowly coalescing from a variety of ethnic roots into discrete, defined kingdoms and nations. Remember that the kingdoms of Spain had just finished establishing an identity for themselves by evicting the Moors from the Iberian Peninsula when the conquest of the New World kicked off. And within a generation of Columbus, Spain was united under one crown. If I could make a sweeping generalization, you could argue that the European experience had been coming together into largest top-down kingdoms slash empire slash governments. In contrast, on the American continent, things took a completely different tact. The Amerindians were, once again, generally speaking, more homogenous than Eurasians. To put it bluntly, a lot of the Amerindians, especially the various Puebloan peoples, looked all alike to the Europeans. Both physically and in what they grew, ate, created, and how they worshipped. However, their superficial similarities hid surprisingly complex differences in religions, language, and organization. And that leads to the other great difference that will bring us around to the Apache again. Quite simply, 
and to the great consternation of Europeans, there was no king. That is to say that most of the tribes lived in units that were nowhere close to approaching the size of European states. You might remember from our look at the ancient peoples of Arizona from episode 4 that larger regional organizations seem to have existed among the ancestral Puebloan and the Hohokam, but by the time of the European invasion, these were long gone. And the Amerindians of the Southwest they encountered were also particularly decentralized. The myriad Puebloan communities were generally autonomous with no greater regional ruling structure. As part of this decentralized way of life, Weber points out that they lack the features of emerging European states that were primarily designed for social order. That means there was really no bureaucracy, armies, or police. The Spanish were forever trying to shoehorn Apaches into their notions of tribes and governments, but it was a round hole that this particular square peg would just not fit into. Weber quotes historian Frederick Hoxie in saying that we cannot think of the Amerindian communities as some smaller, less developed village in the style of Europeans, but rather see them as unique, non-Western social structures that were, quote, rooted in the obligations of kinship rather than the appeal of political ideology, end quote. And that definitely is the case with the Apache. Now comes the fun part, where you get to listen to me, who is thoroughly immersed in the Western tradition of organization, try and relay the Apache model, which has confused and confounded the Spanish, Mexicans, and American pioneers before me. I'm going to be leaning heavily here on Edwin R. Sweeney's biography of Cochise, as he breaks it down in fair detail, though he was originally writing in the 1950s. If anyone out there listening has a more detailed breakdown from a more recent source, I would be happy to revise and extend these comments after reading it. I'm also going to be focusing a lot on the Chiricahua Apache today, because in coming episodes we are going to be dealing a lot with this particular subset, especially as we encounter towering figures such as Mangas Coloradas, Cochise, and eventually Geronimo. Okay, so, the first thing to stress, yet again is the decentralized nature of the Apaches. The Apaches, or those of Athapascan descent, are divided into roughly seven major groupings, with three of these forming an eastern division, while the remaining four, including the Navajo, Mescalero, Western, and Chiricahua, were a western division. Just to drive home the point that we are not looking at one monolithic force, Remember that many of these divisions had their own language, even if they were related. And these groupings were further divided into bands. Let's take a look at the Chiricahua. This name was applied to them by the Spanish and is possibly of Opata origin. They called themselves and were called by neighboring tribes many different things that I will not even attempt to pronounce. But the Chiricahua were divided into four different bands, which I will try to pronounce, and will, more likely than not, butcher. These bands were the Chichenes, Nedjis, Chaconans, and the Bedancojes, which was the smallest of the four groups. In the 1860s, the Bedancoje band was assimilated into others, with many opting to follow Cochise. 
These bands also made up the groups that the Spanish, Mexicans, and Americans called the Mimbres, Warm Springs, Gila, Janeros, Carrizaleños, Pinery, and Chiricahua Apache. Important to our purposes is that when early Americans refer to the Chiricahua Apaches, they are usually talking about the Chaconans. Taking this down a level further, each band consisted of three to five local groups, sometimes called clans. These groups were made up of several families who camped together, but Sweeney notes that this was not a stable unit. If resources dwindled or during times of war and sickness, clans would easily break apart and reassemble with different families elsewhere. As for the family groups themselves, they generally consisted of parents, their unmarried children, and their married daughters and their families. Chiricahua Apache families were matriarchal, so when a son married, he stopped being part of his family's clan and joined that of his wives. One of the few exceptions to this was Cochise, whose predominant position meant his family joined his clan and not the other way around. After listening to all of that, I further want you to disabuse yourself of the notion that any of this was rigid, codified, or had anything approaching our notion of societal organization. State historian Marshall Trimble writes that the Apache never considered themselves a quote-unquote tribe. An individual's allegiance ran first to his family, then his clan, then his band, and then maybe, just maybe, up to a group and then other Apache as a whole. According to Sweeney, the band was the political unit, if it can even be called that, of the Apache, and the various bands inside of a particular group recognized the relation between them due to a common language and cultural practices. Bands were usually at peace with each other and would gather for dances, marriages, and other ceremonial occasions. Now, Sweeney says that ceremony dominated Apache life, which I think is sort of a cop-out because you could say the same thing about most civilizations, including our own. He lists several ceremonies that a child would go through growing up. These included the blessing of a cradle specifically made to hold a newborn and its adornment with various amulets and other powerful objects. This cradle would be turned to face all four cardinal directions, starting with the east, before the baby would be put inside and a celebration held. Next came the moccasin ceremony when the child was learning to walk. They would again take steps in each of the cardinal directions under the supervision of a shaman or medicine man. I keep saying this, but I apologize if my language is imprecise or lacking in some way. I fully acknowledge that I'm a white guy trying to sum up a culture that is foreign to me by reading books. So, when we say medicine man, the actual meaning goes far beyond our understanding of medicine. These were spiritual and cultural leaders, and the concept of medicine could also be seen as being a conduit for supernatural power. This will factor into our discussions of Geronimo, who is often called a medicine man, and told others that he had been assured that no enemy could kill him. As children, the Chiricahua Apache began to learn about their religion and the expectations of their society. I've seen it written that the Apache didn't have laws per se, but instead a slew of cultural norms that would be reinforced through societal observance and peer pressure. 
For the children of leaders, such as Cochise, these lessons would be heavily stressed. Even though there was no real concept of hereditary leadership in their bands, the sons of Apache leaders were expected to be shining models of their people's values. At around six or seven, a male relative would give a boy their first bow and teach them how to hunt birds and small game. Around this time, the boys would be separated from the girls and began playing games such as tug-of-war, hide-and-seek, and other activities that emphasize speed, agility, and strength. This is also the age when they first started practicing with that great tool borrowed-slash-stolen from the Spanish, the horse. In their early teens, boys might be given guard duty or other like positions as they continued to learn how to hunt or ride. Usually around 14, according to Sweeney, they could begin their training as a warrior, becoming a, here we go again, decoje, or novice. This training was more rigorous and organized, overseen by the experienced members of the clan. Emphasis again was on strength, speed, agility, and discipline. Sweeney and others recount that preparation included such things as jumping into an icy lake nude in the middle of winter, or running up and down mountains as quickly as possible. The last phase of this novice training would be to volunteer for a war band or a scouting party. With the blessing of a shaman, the Dekoje would be able to go, but their every move was scrutinized to make sure they were physically capable and obedient to the head of the party. They would also be given a ceremonial cap with four feathers. One from a hummingbird for speed. One from an eagle for protection from illness or misfortune. One from an oriole for clear thinking. And one from a gamble's quail to frighten an enemy. For that last bit to make sense, think of the startle you get when a bird suddenly springs up out of the brush. The sources also mention other restrictions based in Apache beliefs, such as having to drink through a tube, apparently if your lips touch water you would grow a mustache, and the Apache frowned upon facial hair. Also, they had to eat all their food cold, otherwise it would somehow spell misfortune with the horses and heaven forbid they should sleep with a woman during this time, as it would condemn them to a life of lasciviousness. The Dekohe would follow the warriors and learn from them, doing the camp chores such as cooking, preparing beds, and standing guard. In return, the seasoned warriors were expected to keep the Dekohe out of harm's way. A failure to do so would reflect poorly on the man running the party. If, during these outings, the Dekohe proved to be dishonest, cowardly, gluttonous, or otherwise unrestrained, he would be labeled as unreliable, which could follow him the rest of his life. Finally, though, after four such trips, the man could stop being a Dekohe, unless there were any sharp criticisms about his character. At that point, he was now a full-fledged warrior, and it was also the moment when he could start seriously thinking about marriage. Trimble, in his admittedly brief and generalized summation of the Apache, wrote that at marriage, a close relative of the prospective groom would negotiate with the family of the desired bride. The groom might also leave horses outside the home of his future in-laws. If he came by the next day and they had been added to the family's herd, then his proposal had been accepted. If several days came and went and they had remained outside the house, then, well, 
that was a sign of rejection. And while I'm of necessity talking mostly about the male warriors, we should not forget the role of women, too. Like in many societies, girls would learn the domestic arts from their mothers and grandmothers. At adolescence, Apache girls would go through the important sunrise ceremony, where, invoking the spirit and power of white-painted woman, they would go through a four-day ordeal that included songs, dances, blessings, rituals, and running toward the four cardinal directions. As far as I can determine, and anyone feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, this sunrise ceremony was observed among the various Apache divisions. But though they had a domestic role, we should remember that Apache girls, as well as boys, were taught the hunting arts and to be in good physical shape. When trouble came, it came to everyone, so everyone had to be prepared. There are instances where Apache women went into battle, and we here on this podcast have even seen at least one instance of Apache women being the ones negotiating with the Mexicans. I'm speaking in generalities a lot here because remember, the Apaches are not one giant thing, but are actually many little things that may have similar languages and customs, but still have a separate identity. And as I said, this drove the Spanish, Mexicans, and Americans crazy as there was no one leader they could talk to. As one writer put it, for a white person, especially a soldier used to a clearly delineated hierarchy, the Apache structure was a bewildering maze. And, as with most times when a large, centrally governed nation-state tries to deal with a tribe or tribal confederation, it also leads to huge misunderstandings. Because a Presidio could make a peace agreement with one band of Apache, but then a totally different band of Apache might raid the Presidio. Now, the original band might have kept their word, but the Spanish might blame them anyway because, hey, you're all Apache, right? Not being able to tell bands apart, or allied clans from enemy clans, is a huge handicap. And it's this type of misunderstanding that will lead to our subject next week, the Bascom Affair. Which, spoiler alert, is a big, big deal. So what I hope that I've done today is take the mask somewhat off of our Tuscan Raiders and show that they had a developed culture and set of values all of their own. However, we still shouldn't forget that they were raiders. The Apache were masters of stealth hunting and raiding, something aided by the introduction of the horse. Trimble says that a show of bravado during battle was the last thing an Apache warrior wanted as, quote, his stock and trade was stealth and cunning, end quote. You might remember from way back in episode 8 that Anza the Elder started adopting Apache methods, such as riding at night, usually at the time of the full moon for light, which also helped mask the dust kicked up by his animals. He and his men also started using Apache-like lances for combat instead of some European weapons, which proved clumsier when fighting this particular foe. So, in this way, maybe the Apaches are like Tuscan raiders, just using horses instead of banthas and lances instead of gaffy sticks. Though, for the record, I have not seen anything written about them writing single file to hide their numbers. Over the centuries, and especially in the Mexican era, the Apache had established several raiding trails, mostly along river valleys that led from Arizona and New Mexico down into Mexico. They were mostly interested in livestock and captives, 
which there was a healthy market for, especially up in Taos, New Mexico. Livestock is obvious, as horses were fast becoming indispensable. In the early days of the Spanish invasion, these animals were closely guarded and controlled, making a raid to steal them necessary. I even have one source that claims that it was something of a rite of passage for Apache boys to steal their first horse. As for the people, well, women and children would be taken. Men, not so much. And any men that were captured could usually only expect the worst. Trimble says that the Apache were as good as their enemies when it came to, quote, making death a long, terrible ordeal, end quote. Women captives were in for a hard life. They would be prized by the warriors who captured them, but despised by the Apache women. Their captivity, the foreign Apache lifestyle, and the spite of the native women all conspired against them. Funny enough, children might have fared the best. Although they would be killed if they were too young to travel, many were taken and raised as Apaches and could even achieve some level of prominence. Sorry to keep foreshadowing, but at the heart of the Bascom affair is the capture of such a child. Now, an important distinction must be made. The Chiricahuans in particular made a clear delineation between raiding and warfare. As one source puts it, quote, Raids were motivated by economics, war parties usually by revenge, end quote. A raiding party would therefore be small, and sought to strike quick, take what they wanted, and disappear back into the desert. A war party, meanwhile, would be larger and involve several local groups or clans, maybe even different bands. And when it came to war, there's no one the Apaches liked to fight more than the Mexicans. The grudge was an old one going back hundreds of years. You might remember from back in episode 6 that we talked about the encomienda system, which was basically a form of slavery. The Apache as a people were never subjugated as such, but there were plenty of times when Spanish and later Mexican slavers had captured individuals, which did not help relations much. After Spain was kicked out in the end of the peace-by-purchase policy, the Apaches began raiding in large numbers again. This caused the Mexicans to retaliate, and a large number of atrocities were racked up on both sides. Two in particular stayed long in Apache memory. The Johnson Affair, which we talked about in episode 18. That's when, using a small cannon, John Johnson killed a group of Apaches he had been treating with in 1837. The other involved the ruthless, unscrupulous scalp hunter James Kirker, when he massacred and scalped around 130 Apache men, women, and children near the Mexican town of Galeana in 1846. We discussed that in passing in episode 23. Both these massacres were nigh unforgivable, and the Apaches came to loathe the Mexicans. You might remember that after the Johnson Affair, historian James Officer wrote that from that point on, it was uncompromising warfare between the two sides. But you might have noticed something else about these two particular incidents. They were committed not by Mexicans, but Americans. In a way, these events foreshadowed the conflict to come. Apache culture had clashed time and time again with the Spanish and the Mexicans, those hated Cristianos malditos, 
But now another conflict was looming with this brand new player on the scene. So join me next week when most of what we talked about today will conspire to bring the Cherikawa Apache under the leadership of the fearsome Cochise into a tense and bloody standoff with the U.S. Army. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.